Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome, everyone. My name's Nick Van Ruth. I'm one of the pastors here at Hills Baptist Church. Special shout out and thank you to everyone who joined us in the Working Bee yesterday. We're focused on the west side of the church, uh, mostly clearing the path uh, down here so we can actually get through that crazy overgrown jungle down to Kids Church uh, from outside. So thank you, those who joined us yesterday. Uh, I want to show you something that maybe it's something you can relate to. This isn't true of my current phone, but a previous phone um, uh, and soon to be my wife's phone as well. This is a great piece of technology, right? It's got all this functionality. You can watch videos. You can um, use it as a calculator. You can search the web. You can do all these things. Uh, but at one point, previous phone, I've replaced it because of this, uh, I would call people and they wouldn't be able to hear what I'm saying. So with all this functionality and flash, it's not able to fulfill its core purpose, right? Has anyone else had that experience with their phone? Like it's got all this functionality, but the core thing it's meant to do, the core thing it's meant to be, it's not. And that's problematic. And what do I do with that phone? I got rid of it. And this is a, I think this is a warning for the church because we're, we're, we're building the church. We want to grow. There's all these church building, church growth strategies of being this great, glamorous organization, uh, doing great things in the world. And we're building, we're building, we're building. But what kind of people are we becoming? Are we so caught up with this mission of making disciples that we forget what it means to be a disciple? And um, this is the experience that uh, Nehemiah kind of grapples with in Nehemiah 5. If you've been following along in, this, in the sermon series, we've been working with this, with Mount Barker and with Verdun. And, um, and there's been this, this building of momentum, building in, in both senses of the word, uh, starting in chapter 1, where Nehemiah hears about the plight of Israel. The walls are down and he is heartbroken heartbroken of the situation that Israel finds themselves in, the walls destroyed. And so he, he, um, uh, he, he thinks and prays and, and gets stirred up for building the wall. In chapter 2, he travels to Israel and he, he uh, surveys the land, the wall, and he rallies the people and he, he commissions it, the Israelites into building a wall. He says, let's build this wall. Let's sort this out. Let's fix this problem. And so they get rallied up and inspired to build the wall. In chapter 3, it describes uh, the, how everyone had a part to play in building this wall. All these different people doing all different parts and each doing their own bit. Everyone had a part to play in building the wall. In chapter 4, we see opposition. There's people uh, in the areas from outside Jerusalem, outside Israel, are coming and opposing and, and talking down Nehemiah, talking down the wall. But Nehemiah resolves all the more. We'll keep building. We'll build with a sword in one hand and a tool in the other. We'll keep building. But then in chapter 5, there's not a mention of any building. 
it stops because there is an outcry. There's an outcry. The, the men and their wives raise a great outcry because of the injustice, not outside of the Israelite people, but inside. Now this word outcry is the same, uh, same word that's used uh, in Egypt. If you know the story of the Israelite people, they were enslaved in Egypt under incredible persecution and, and oppression. And they cried out to God to save them. They cried out under the impression, uh, the, the, the oppression that they were facing under the Egyptians. It's that same word, the Israelite people crying out, but not because of the oppression of the Egyptians, because of the oppression of their own people. Their own people enslaving Israelites. And so um, they say, we, it kind of runs down the narrative. They, they need to eat and stay alive. They must get grain. So they mortgage their fields in order to afford the grain. And then they can't, um, uh, they have to borrow money to pay the king's taxes for the fields. And um, they can't afford that. So they end up selling their own children into slavery to other Israelites, to their own people. Now, how did they get into this situation? How did it come to this? Because uh, when they were returned to Israel after, after being exiled for uh, however many years, uh, they were returned. Uh, King Cyrus, who sent them back, actually opened up the treasury of Persia and all the, the, the wealth that they had stolen from Israel was returned. And so they came back quite wealthy with, with a lot of stuff, a lot of material, a lot of um, things. And um, the prophet Haggai uh, talks about um, they were building the temple and the temple looked really shabby and, and dodgy in how they're building. But all the rich people had uh, verandas and second stories and mansions and granite um, bench tops and you know, all the fancy stuff. And he has this, this massive critique of Israel. All the rich are building amazing houses for themselves. And yet uh, the temple... And the poor are left in, in, in ruins and, and ragged. And there's a drought. There's a drought throughout, uh, throughout Israel, throughout the world. And of course, that just applies more pressure. And, and so what we see is they, they need to eat. And people aren't able to grow their own stuff, so they need to buy grain from others. And so they take out loans. Who they take loans out from? From the rich people. And so they take loans from the rich and... Uh, to, to eat, but then that those loans have interest on them and they can't afford the interest. And the only way they seem to be able to pay for these loans is to uh, in, indentured service or slavery, to give up their own children and themselves into slavery, into service to those they've loaned from, which in previous situations are other nations. But in these situations, it's the own people of Israel. Now, it doesn't say explicitly, but if, if, if people are, um, uh, even uh, some daughters have been enslaved, young women being enslaved, it doesn't take much to think of what might be happening in those kind of situations. It's horrible stuff going on. Horrible stuff. Uh, the, the, the rich and the elites and the leaders of Israel 
taking advantage of their own people, abusing their own people. And there's, although they're doing great work and great progress building the wall, behind those walls, there is this disobedience and an evil at the highest level. Uh, the Israelite leaders, the elite, the rich, serving their own needs at the expense of their own brothers and sisters. Are they not our own flesh and blood? And that's what's happening. This, this institutional disobedience amongst the Israelite people. How does Nehemiah respond to this disobedience? The, f- the first thing, he gets angry. He, it says... Um, In verse 6, when he heard the outcry and these charges, he got very angry. Angry at the injustice his own people are experiencing. Angry against the evil that he's seeing. Angry that he hadn't already done anything to to deal with it. And just like, uh, it's interesting, um, Nehemiah kind of operates as a prophet in this situation, calling Israel out. We'll talk about that in a sec. But he doesn't doesn't, um, lash out and just scream at all the Israelites and the first thing he does, he, he takes a step back and it says he takes counsel with himself. He takes counsel with himself. He stops and instead of jumping in to, to shame those involved, he steps back to consider his own involvement. How do we come to a situation like this? And I think... Um, uh, well, any organization, but particularly churches can learn a lot from this. When we see uh, disobedience and sin occurring in the church, whether that's by leaders or by, by others, instead of jumping to blame and to, to, to put all the responsibility on those people, actually stepping back and reflecting, have we created an environment that's allowed this? Have we created an environment that's encouraged this? Is there any way that I'm responsible for what is happening? Is there any way I'm responsible for the injustice that we see both here and in the world? Important step of stepping back and taking counsel with ourselves. And we'll see a bit later what that, that Nehemiah does reflect on his own involvement, his own contribution to this problem. We'll hear about that in a sec. But then he calls, so after taking counsel with himself, he calls the leaders to, together and he calls them out. He calls them out for how they are behaving. He calls them out for this injustice. And the first thing he says, um, he, he accuses the nobles and officials and he tells them, you are charging your own people interest. You're charging your own people interest. Now, when we hear that, it's like, is that such a big deal? Like, you know, isn't that just normal economics of people take loans and you charge interest to encourage being paid back? And that's just such a normal practice in, in our economy these days. Like, why... And so normal practice in, in the ancient Near East, those days as well. Why is this such a big deal? Why have all the things to talk about? Why does he address charging interest? Because that's not very interesting. <laughs> it's because it's a, it's, a, it's a blatant defiance of God's word. 
Israel had been commanded in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, Exodus as well not to charge their brothers and sisters interest. Not to charge interest. Because that's how the rest of the world works. But that's not how the people of God works. They're disobeying the law. And, and, um, and then he also says, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. So he says, like, we were, we were, um, we were enslaved to the Egyptians, but then we were set free. And then we were exiled and we were enslaved to the Babylonians and then the Persians, but then we were set free. And now we're enslaved to ourselves. Like we're, our daughters and sons are being sold into slavery within our own kingdom, to our own people. How could that happen? We're just acting like the other uh, nations around us. What's really going on below the city, the, sorry, below the surface, they're building a city uh, that is meant to be set aside as the people of God, a city of God, but it's becoming like every other city in the world enslaving their own people like the Egyptians, taxing excessively like the Persians were doing, building a wall and building a kingdom, not for God, but for themselves. And Nehemiah is sick of it. He says, stop being like the Egyptians. Stop being like the Persians. Stop being like every other nation out there and start acting like the people of God, who you truly are. That's the next thing he calls them to. He calls them out and then he calls them back. What does he call them back to? In verse 9, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't we walk in the fear of God? Walk in the fear of God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. They're not called, the, the Israelites aren't to be, act like every other nation. They're called to be different. And the difference is they fear God. They fear God. Now, what does fear of God mean? It's a, it's a phrase that's used throughout the Bible, but particularly in the Old Testament. It's used very often in wisdom literature, in the wisdom writings. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom being the skill of, of doing life well. And what, how do we live wisely? It's by fearing God. And it's not being afraid of God. It's not quite what the word captures. It's not, and even like being very respectful of God, that's not quite it. Um, I did a lot of study on this uh, during my Bible college um, years. Uh, gosh, it was only last year, but it seems like ages ago. Um, <laughs> A helpful way of understanding the fear of God, fear of the Lord, is understanding our place in His world. So rather than understanding God, how He fits into our world, but it's actually how do we fit into God's world? And then then what works out from there is living life well under God. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, um, uh, Moses is uh, speaking to the Israelites, uh, calling them to what what does God require? As we enter into the promised land, what does God require of his people? This is what he says. And now Israel, what does the Lord our God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? 
And then what does that mean? To walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's command and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. The Israelites, particularly the rich, forgot their place in God's world. And they started living thinking how everything else could fit and serve their world. Taking loans and charging interest and and, uh, taking advantage of the poor in their city because it served them. They'd lost the fear of the Lord. But that's what Nehemiah calls them back to. We ought to fear God, know our place in His world. The next thing that Nehemiah does is confesses. He spent some time uh, taking counsel with himself and reflecting on his own involvement. And here it comes out. He says, it's not just you that has this problem. I too have been contributing to this. I too am responsible for this this, um, institutional issue. In verse 10, he says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Nehemiah takes responsibility of his own part of this problem. He takes responsibility. And then him and the rest of Israel, or the leaders, I should say, the next thing they do is they make amends. They, uh, they um, give back what had been taken. And Nehemiah says, give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, the olive groves and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. And what Nehemiah is actually doing here is instituting a, um, a practice that was meant to be required every 50 years amongst the Israelite people, which is the Jubilee year. Uh, every 50 years, all slaves, all property would go back to those who, to whom it was originally owned as a recognition of we are the people of God and we work together, we help each other and sometimes we're in strife, we'll take loans, we'll get some help. Uh, But we're not going to be caught in that cycle of of generational poverty. We'll break that every 50 years with a jubilee year. Israel never did it. As far as we know, they, they never did that. They never followed that command. But here, Nehemiah reinstates that practice at least once. Return everything to those to whom it originally belonged. And stop acting like the other nations. Let's remember our place in God's world and make amends. Let's reconcile the poor that have been so terribly treated. Let's give them back what we have taken from them, stolen from them. And reconciliation requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. We know that in our own nation and the, the, the work that needs to happen, reconciling with the First Nations of, of, of Australia, it will require sacrifice on our part of the, the rich Anglo-Saxon Australians. I think a big part of the trouble that we're seeing is holding on to what we feel is ours. This is challenging. And it's not just in that situation, any kind of conflict or, or whatever. Making amends, reconciling, making things right, 
takes a sacrifice. The next thing Nehemiah does is he makes a commitment. He leads Israel, not just to do this one, but actually to make a promise of that is not how we're going to behave. We are the people of God. We will promise not to do that again. And so Nehemiah summons the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. In verse 13, he also shook out the folds of his robe and said, in this way, may God shake out their house and their possessions, anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. Um, Nehemiah kind of institutes or, or kind of leads Israel in this living liturgy of he gets a robe and he shakes it out. And I, I imagine if you've ever found a, um, like a, a jumper or a blanket that you've left outside for a while and before you bring it inside the house, you've got to give it a good shake to make sure any spiders, any dust, any dirt don't come with you into the house. And those, the, you know, if you've ever done that and you see the spiders going flying and you think, oh, thank goodness that didn't come with me. But that's what, uh, that's the commitment that Israel is making, that if they start behaving like the other nations again, if they start taking advantage of their own people, may God do to them what Nehemiah does to the, the dust and dirt and grit amongst his robe, shaken out, thrown away. This is serious stuff. It's a big commitment, a big promise. But they do this ceremony. They do this, this liturgy to, to remind them, to form them uh, as people who fear God. And the, the Israelites' response, like if that's, if that's me and someone comes along and, and uh, exposes a really horrible part of my life and I've been behaving incredibly cruelly towards people and um, they call me out and they demand a response and they demand me to fix that problem like my response would be oh man I'm caught out but the Israelites response is to praise they praised God and um uh, the end of verse 13, the whole assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. To, re- to receive a rebuke, to receive correction, it's not a curse, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. To be pruned is a kindness from God. And imagine, imagine as Israel continued to grow and they built this kingdom. Imagine if this toxic, uh, selfish attitude uh, kept on festering, kept on growing amongst the people. And it would have just driven Israel into more and more poverty and more and more conflict and more and more abuse and less and less like the people of God who they actually are. And when, when God comes in, and, and we've seen this a lot in recent years, particularly Christian leaders being called out uh, for, for sin, sexual sin, spiritual abuse, financial infidelity. Leaders being called out and that hurts the church. 
reputation financially, it's the best thing for the church that God brings rebuke, brings correction, that that stuff can be weeded out, can be pruned, that we might better reflect what it actually means to be a disciple. And so the next thing that Nehemiah does, and this is possibly one of the most important things that he does, is he sets an example. He sets an example. And that last half of the passage, 14 through 19, kind of describes the situation Nehemiah is was in. Because he was sent by, um, I can't remember the king's name, but the king from Persia, King Xerxes or Artaxerxes. Yeah, it's right there, Artaxerxes. Um, he's sent by King Artaxerxes and he's been given a, um, like a, 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 um, a food allowance, a daily food allowance, which... Uh, one writer, one commentator says about $3,000 a day equivalent, you know, just for, for him to eat. That's some really nice food. I don't get that at church. But he won't use it. He refuses to take advantage of that food allowance because where does that food allowance come from? From the Israelites. The, the, from the Israelites, that's where it's taken from. So he refuses to. In fact, he flips it. He invites people to his table. And, and even like, um, which is fascinating, not only Israelites, but people from other nations are invited to his table, 150 a day, coming and eating with, with him. And he says this, um, uh where does it say? Because he, he does this um, in verse 15. Um, NIV translated, um, out of reverence of God, I did not act like that. The better translation is out of fear of God. Same word used. Out of fear of God, he did not act like the other governors in other areas who would just take advantage of that and eat like kings at the expense of the people. Out of fear of God. Because he knew his place in God's world. And he knew that God is a generous God and God would take care of him. And he knew that he was to reflect the character and, 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 and love and generosity of God. So it's radically countercultural generosity was driven by fear, was driven by his understanding that he is a child of God. He's a, he is God's king and he leads God's way. What kind of people are we becoming? What kind of people are we becoming? Are we actually living out the core purpose for which God has set us apart? God is serious about his people. He didn't come to, he didn't tell Nehemiah to come and just build a wall. He, he, he's brought Nehemiah to Israel to reform his people, that they would know God, they would know his heart that they would follow him, that they would actually live out being the people of God. And what's most important in church is not how many people come. It's not the building. It's not, uh, you know, the, the projects that we do and the, the things we do. It's the most important thing in a Christian community, in a church community, is personal and corporate formation, that we would become more like Jesus. And we can't let the mission of making disciples distract us from actually being disciples. 
We need to be formed into the people of God who fear God. We know our place in God's world. And I reckon the New Testament equivalent is faith. Faith is understanding our place in God's world and that He is a God who loves us and saved us and will transform us. So what are we building? What kind of people are we becoming? What sin or disobedience is is lurking under the surface that God is rebuking us, convicting us about? Because we're in a situation where the world will keep forming us. We're all being formed into something. And what are we allowing to form us? There are daily, weekly, monthly rituals that are forming us into the, what the world wants us to be. Reading the news that, that causes hype and hysteria and fear, in the bad sense of what's going on in the world. Scrolling through Facebook and... Um, Gosh, I get caught in this where I, I, I watch one reel that looks interesting and it is interesting and then half an hour later, I, I find I'm still there. It's not good. We've, we've just uh, celebrated an, uh, an incredibly, in the worldly sense, important um, annual uh, celebration, an annual festival this weekend. Anybody know what it is in the life of um, secular Australia and the world? Black Friday, Cyber Monday, <laughs> Victoria Legend. You know, it's a celebration, a festival of consumerism and materialism. You know, there's sale after sale, so we buy and we buy and we buy, but who's really paying for what we're purchasing? The world is forming us. My, uh, my brother is um, in the States at the moment, he's, and he did an assignment looking into... Um, big, big tech companies and how, how they're operating. And one of the things uh, he shared, which I just think is, is really insightful, is we all know that big tech is selling our information. Like that's, if you're not aware of that, you should be aware of that. Uh, big tech has our information. They sell our information. But even more than that now, they sell our formation. They sell us forming into consumeristic, materialistic people. They're not just selling our information, they're selling our formation. These things are forming us to the way of the world, driving us to make decisions in our own interest rather than in God's. But we are the church of God and we're, we're being even though we are God's people, I feel like across the church, here at Allgate, but everywhere, we're being caught into the narrative of this world that it's all about me, that I've got to do what's best for me and, and my family, build for me, take for me, etc., etc., etc. Build ourselves up at the expense of others. But we're part of a different story, a story where Jesus came and gave his life that we might be saved. Jesus lifts us up at the expense of his own life. And he's made us into his people. And so we've got to get discipleship right. We've got to remember who we are as disciples 
of Jesus. We've got to keep leaning into that story, remind ourselves whose we are and who we are. We are God's people. We are His church. We need a counterformation to the world's formation. And so I, this is something I've been thinking a lot about. And I think like if, if I were to have a, a word for next year, it's formation. How can we do formation better? Forming into the likeness of Jesus. And we need to prioritize and practice those daily, weekly, monthly rituals that would form us into the likeness of Jesus. Living liturgies that will take us and lead us into who Jesus is. We need practices like prayer, reading the Word, worship, gathering on Sundays, life groups, serving, confession, singing, creeds, tithing. And if you permit me to say... The giving at Allgate amongst this group doesn't quite match the size of this community. Something if you're insightful, you can you can read in the AGM later today. Um, and I've, I think you know God will provide, but this is an area that we could grow in as disciples, because it's not about income for the church. It's about demonstrating our dependence not on material, but on God. Now, not everyone can tithe 10% or, or give generally, generously, but everyone can start somewhere. We need to lean into the practices that will shape us and form us to be more like Jesus. We've got to get discipleship right. It's no good building a church full of people that look nothing like Jesus. And Jesus provides both the means and the model of a formed life. He is the one that will transform us and His is the life that we're transformed to. Now to finish up, we're entering a time of social, environmental, economic and political pressure. It won't take much to convince anyone of that. Like the pressure is rising. Like the stress levels are going up and the Israelite elite, way back in ancient Israel, they didn't choose to be selfish. They didn't actively decide, we're going to be horrible people who will enslave our own people. It was the pressure around them, the economic and the political pressure around them that made them, led them into making small decisions that kept the focus inward. And we have that same pressure. I feel it. You feel it. We all feel this pressure from our situations of of keep looking out for number one, keep looking in. But what kind of people are we going to be? One particular example of this that I keep uh, bumping into is, uh, you know, we've got a lot of young adults in our community. And one of the the big challenges uh, in the next 10 years would be young people finding a place to live. The rental industry is getting tougher and tougher, particularly for people trying to break into it. Who, who, Who cares about buying a house these days? Renting a house is challenging, is tough. Uh, people, they have the means, but just not the opportunity. And at the same time, we've got a growing population of people 
with with houses and their their adult children are moving on, they've got empty rooms. What kind of people are we going to be? There's opportunity there to show radical generosity. If you read Acts, I've been reading Acts with someone uh, in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and 5, it talks about the Israelites sharing everything they had, everything with each other. Radical generosity to reflect the radically generous God that we belong to. How as a church are we going to step up and not live and act like the rest of the world, but live and act like Jesus? As the pressure builds, are we going to be driven by the fear of the world, the fear of our situation, or the fear of God? Like Nehemiah, we need to examine ourselves, call out sin and disobedience in the world, learn what it means to fear God together and for ourselves, confess where we've fallen short, commit to living God's way and setting an example for each other and for the world of radical generosity. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Nehemiah. We, Lord God, we, we lament um, with Nehemiah the situation that went on there, the, the horrible situation that Israel found themselves. And Lord, we lament the injustice in the world that we are seeing I've given one small, maybe relatively minor example, but Lord, there's, there's injustice being caused by your church throughout the world. Even us, the small decisions that we make that are, are selfish and self-seeking, Lord, we don't want to live like that. We, we don't want to be characterized by selfishness. We want to be, we, we do want to live like you. We want to know our place in your world. So Lord, we, we pray that you would form us more and more to be like Jesus. Help us to commit to those practices that will help in that direction. Help us to be aware of all the different areas that we're involved in that are leaving down the opposite way. And where things need to change, Lord, Lord change them. Help us to change them. Lord, help us to make amends for the injustice that we have made. And, you know, with the First Nations people, with, with uh, conflicts within the church, conflicts we might have with people, it will take sacrifice. It will take giving up what we feel is rightfully ours. But Lord, we, we pray that You would enable us to do this, that it wouldn't be about us, but it would be about You that You'd grow us into a community that is radically generous, that is radically different to the world around us, that we're formed not by the world, but by Jesus, to look like Jesus, to love like Jesus. And Lord, may that be a light to the world, that people would see us interact with each other and they wouldn't say, look how horrible they are to each other. They would say, look how they love one another. 
And that would lead people to want to be part of our community. We want to be part of your people. Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to guide us. We need your word uh, to show us the way. We thank you that uh, we are disciples, not by our own effort, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And Lord, every day, the most important part of our formation is reminding us who we are in Christ. That is not up to our own effort, but up to Jesus' work done on the cross. We thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.